Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek. And today I'm going to be speaking with Malcolm McCullough about his new book, Ambient Commons, Attention in the Age of Embodied Information. Malcolm McCullough is Associate Professor of Architecture and Design at the University of Michigan. He's the author of Digital Ground, Architecture, Pervasive Computing, and Environmental Knowing, which is also published by the MIT Press. Malcolm McCullough, thanks for taking time to speak with the MIT Press Podcast today. Hi, Chris. Very glad to do this. So when we talk about an ambient commons, should we think of it as a physical location, such as an urban landscape, or the air surrounding the landscape that holds the Wi-Fi or radio signals, or is it the sum total of both? Well, a location, but increasingly an augmented location. Uh, airways may be the most ambient of all, but this is a book about attention to physical surroundings. right? An ambient commons is a culturally valued hybrid, then, of built space and its information overlays. After all, life takes place. Let, let me open three thoughts about this. First, first off, uh, digital media don't dissolve or replace the world so much as they augment it. You don't park your atoms and go through a looking glass into cyberspace, right? Doesn't that sound so 90s? So one reason for this book is that the physical world is filling with ever more kinds of media in ever more appealing interfaces used in ever more aspects of life. Although a lot of people seem obsessed with their mobile handhelds lately, some so much as to appear oblivious to the world around them, uh, increasingly those smartphones uh, help make use of context. And besides, they're situated technologies too. So together these make a terrific design opportunity uh, but also new personal and cultural sensibilities. So about this book, a lead-off question about ambient interface actually might be more important than one about commons. Uh, take commons as a foil uh, uh, in a book that's mainly about sensibilities to this newly hybrid reality. So that's the, that's the, the, uh, the way in. So, so next, let me respond to this word presence that you asked about. I like that word. Um, be here now is what I mutter when somebody is texting where they shouldn't, like uh, in their car when I'm bicycling, or even I mutter it to myself sometimes when I pull the, I feel an impulse to pull out my phone in the presence of friends. Presence is a good word for benefits of mindfulness to the working of attention, and that's what the book's about. It's not just a matter of etiquette, and it's not just taking mental health breaks, uh, taking care about when and how you use media won't make you into a Luddite, caring about information commons won't make you into a socialist. On the contrary, I think this is about better design and better use of technology. So, so one last point, third point, and this is really a core thought for the book. Augment reality, perhaps, but don't cover it. Don't cover it over in flicking, flickering, low-res reality. I hear that humanity needs to get to know its planet better, right? And I hear that Americans are rediscovering walkable city life. Hooray. Can pervasive technology help with that? Can it give more choice about how to tune in and not out? I mean... Ideally, wouldn't it be wonderful if technology could help humanity understand the world instead of just ignoring it or conquering it? Anyway, the, I think the importance of these questions has been increasing. 
because again, the, I think the media are more diverse, more ubiquitous, and also far more marvelous. Never has more of the human perceptual field been placed so deliberately or re reverse engineered so skillfully for easy cognition. This is what good designers do. So again, the danger is that while increasingly situated in the world, all this mediation can mostly mask the world. And to think of an ambient commons is to, is to think of the alternative. So apart from the intermediary that you talk about, such as a smartphone being able to see augmented reality, this is a discussion we got from the book that we've been having for a while. For instance, you put in a lot of cartoons from the late 19th and early 20th centuries showing the visual clutter from mass advertising. Those are societies. Those urban societies we're dealing with. So is this just that bat so is this just that battle 2.0, or has something fundamentally changed? I think it's fundamentally different. In the early 20th century, there was a famous sociologist named Georg Simmel, who studied how citizens of newly urbanizing industrial Berlin became dulled and, and tuned out from the world around them. But now so much of the, again, the perceptual field, it's not smoke and soot and din anymore. It's, it's appealing. And it's been carried in there and put there deliberately. People are choosing for, out of their own preferences to saturate themselves. This is different. Let's talk about saturation. Uh, suppose I'm a 20-something digital native who's very comfortable working in multiple streams of information, so much so that I find it very difficult to shut off the streams. And that's okay because I can handle it, or I think I can handle it. Won't advances in ambient information just make my life that much richer? It's a net positive for me, no matter how it shakes out. That's just the question, and I, I could go into a little bit of depth in that and take five minutes or so. But there's also a question about what about somebody who is walking around town who hasn't noticed anything different, uh, isn't really being impacted, right? I'd like to consider that first, because that's most people. No, that's me. I live in Portland, Oregon, and it's a very walkable town. I live close to downtown. I don't have a smartphone, so a lot of the augmented reality that is out there I'm unaware of. So my Portland really hasn't changed very much during the 15 years I've lived here, and I use the urban core a lot. Good for you. Walking really counts. Now, I think that you're most people, and this is not a book for techno-futurists or first movers, so much as it's for anyone who even begins to suspect that life is different in an age of information superabundance, which it might just be. Although I don't think it's an attack on attention. I don't know if impact is the right word for something more ambient. I mean, it's been an explosion, all right, but more like a rising tide. For example, have you ever stopped to notice the number of outdoor speakers above sidewalks and compare that with what was there just five or ten years ago? Somebody wants you to feel good. But somebody wants you not to notice. This book is for anyone who has noticed a rising tide or a diffusion of attention, whether or not they are uh, a user of locative media, augmented reality, urban computing, whatever they'll call that next year. In some sense, it's not such a new idea. Herb Simon called this 40 years ago, right? He wrote in 1971 that a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. Well, just consider what a wealth of information there is now compared to 1971. But now careful. What if all those feeds are just full of empty calories? Or what if one has so many feeds that they ultimately cut you off from the world itself? So let me make three disclaimers here. 
first off, I'm not a cognitive scientist. I'm just a writer making an inquiry as if the enlightened reader could come along for the ride. Two, this is not a book of neurobabble. You'll have to look elsewhere for amateur citations of how neuroscience offers breezy proof that we, whoever that is, all think this way and not that. And personally, I would not read, much less write, any book with the word how in the title. Uh, third disclaimer, this is a long-form scholarly inquiry and not a tweet. And it's written by a design professor, not a journalist, and not an unreadable research scientist. In fact, I hope I've written it with a love of language to sit down with for a read. I believe that understanding more about the workings of attention takes some outlay of attention. And I hope that the inconvenience of a long-form text has some long-term insights for those who do sit down and read it. So as you talk about mindfulness, attention, and there's a final chapter on silence, I hear, and this is my description, not yours, a Buddhist flavor to the book. And I mention this not to highlight Buddhism, but to wonder if the design issue that needs to be confronted is one of simplicity while giving as much information as possible. Does that make sense? It does, but no careful attention isn't necessarily something that you pay. It can be effortless. And, and careful, the world can inform without things being sent. I think the main shift in the world of cognition that I can see from where I sit is something about embodiment. Now, is that Buddhist too? I don't know. I, again, I, I'm no Buddhist. Embodied cognition, as they call it, means that the mind is not just a symbolic processor in a vat. You can know by doing. You can know without, without having names and procedures for everything. Uh, and you can know with the immediate environment playing important cognitive roles. Does the intrinsic structure of an object or space have affordances, as designers like to say, without those having been declared or designed as such? Does the high resolution and slow pace of physical space somehow complement the fast but low-res media used in it? After all, the world gives messages something to be about, right? Uh, it, make, it helps make sense of activities. Architecture has a cognitive role. Anyway, there's a widely recited paradox. You, you probably know this one. That the solution to too much information is almost always more information. Metadata, filters, whatever it is that gives scale and scope. Now, what I'm saying is that things that haven't been sent, the configuration of the world, is some of that more information. Uh, epistemologists call it environmental information. I'm calling it intrinsic information because that E word gets overexposed too much. A sense of where you are and what is going on helps to filter overload. When I hear that, and this is an example that you use in the book, where architecture has a tacit informational role that can be experienced without using specific attention, I think about medieval cathedrals. You can see the way they use statuary, fresco, stained glass. They communicate liturgy to the illiterate, while the overall space evokes certain sensations and feelings. There's no question that architecture communicates. I, felt, I feel like I dug into the, all of that a lot more in my previous book, Digital Ground. And here, instead, I, I, I'm, I'm looking more at the relation of mindfulness to just even noticing surroundings. I feel like we're up against something more like perpetual entertainment now. So should I have used an example instead of a cathedral, maybe the image of an invisible Times Square, which can be turned on with the proper intermediary systems? So does the question become, when should we turn this Times Square on? 
I can walk through a park now and notice trees budding and squirrels running around. But if I turn the invisible Times square on, it will crowd out the reality of being in that park. Is that what you're talking about? I think your earlier question was closer yet. It's a design problem how media layer into and bring alive uh, physical urban space. There are beginnings of this in the world, and uh, they tend to happen in great global cities. For example, look what London did with mobility and air quality by introducing uh, an information technology scheme for congestion pricing for driving into the center of town. Look at, look at the spread of bike share systems, which are a pervasive computing app par excellence, very, very good hybrid reality app, you know, Vailib and so on. Look at the rise of DIY monitoring for noise or for surveillance or for graffiti or even for everyday upkeep. Uh, New York has C-click-fix, for instance. Now, one name for this new genre or discipline is urban computing, and it's going to need a better name than that. But this is where the design challenges lie. It's not so much a question of uh, designing a, a more uh, sane and, and, and decent uh, portal to the, the great universe of, of disembodied uh, remote media. Too much of media studies assumes that all feeds are remote, whereas there's a big shift toward things that are locative and in place. That, that's specifically what I've been looking at, not just in this book, but in the previous one. So, so the, the design challenges have to do with embodiment, coming back to that word of embodiment. And they have to do with finding the right resolution. Ambient is not always delivering as much feed as possible. Am, ambient could be slower. Things don't have to jump around like television commercials. There's beautiful new augmentations of the Bay Bridge right now this week, for instance. That, could, that thing could have a time frame that lasted for days. So finally, since you finished the book, have you noticed anything new about the place you live in? Well, I live in a small place, and I notice it very acutely all the time. But I would say that doing the book has made me generally more appreciative of where I am and occasionally able to steer my attention in media habits a little bit. Let me make an analogy to another time and place. Half a century ago, there were lots of people who started doing absolutely everything in cars because they could. Think Southern California, right? But there were some people who thought that, wait a minute, doing just everything in cars was going to have its costs and who chose to live where they could walk to work, for instance. I did so myself 30 years ago when basically nobody did that. Now, who would want to be captive to a monoculture of cars? or of television, or I don't know, of your meds as an old person, or, or of smartphones. Or, or, it, it, so what I, well, I think what, how I've been changed by this is that I'm much more likely to go back, to, to, to fall back on my physical settings at greater frequency to calibrate myself and my attentional sensibilities to make more mindful choices about the next things I will do with the media at hand. I feel less like I'm going to just be grazing and more like I'm going to get in and do something and get out with the media. And I feel no guilt whatsoever about unplugging now and then. Malcolm McCullough, the author of Ambient Commons, Attention to the Age of Embodied Information. Thanks for speaking with the MIT Press Podcast today. Thanks, Chris. It's really a pleasure. 
For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget the MIT Press is on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash MIT Press. And you can also follow us on Twitter, where we are, at MIT Press. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press podcast. Copyright 2013, the MIT Press. All rights reserved.